We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're starting a new book of the Bible tonight. Wednesday nights we're going through the Bible, so we finished 1 Thessalonians, and we're in 2 Thessalonians uh, tonight. Did you guys enjoy the night of prayer and worship a week ago? It was a, a neat time. We've been praying for you as you wrote things down and nailed them to the cross and praying that God's meeting you in those things. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to study it tonight. And God, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts. And as we look at clearing up confusion, if there's things that we've gotten confused about you, about your second coming, that that would be clarified. If there's other things in our lives that have been confusing to us, that we could find ourselves hearing from you. So we pray for real clarity. We pray for a move of the Spirit, Father. We thank you for what you've been doing in our church this week through the night of prayer and worship, so the Wren Collective concert, the Harvest Gathering. Lord, we're looking forward to the men's conference. We pray that you would really bless that. And we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Clearing up confusion, clearing up misunderstandings, they happen very quickly and very easily. Last night, we were in the minivan as a, a family dropping off some books at the library just in time. They were due November 1st, and we're dropping them off no, November 1st. We noticed that you can drop off your ballots. There's a drive-through drop-off ballots, and, and Amber says, well, let's do that. We'll save the postage. Let's drop off our, our ballots. And our daughter, our six-year-old daughter, Eileen, she says, why would you get rid of the pallets? We have pallets at home that we use to do projects, to make uh, outdoor furniture, or we've made them into to flower beds, and you know you plant uh, flowers in, inside of them, and it's kind of a fun little creative part of our, our family, so we've got our little collection of, of pallets, and all of a sudden, Eileen was defending the pallets, and she's saying, you can't drop off the pallets, why would you get rid of the pallets? And we look at Eileen, and we said, no, we said ballots. And she goes, well, what's a ballot? You know, she had no, no idea. But in that one moment, confusion came into her heart and mind. Now, how messed up would she be as an adult if she thought a pallet was a ballot, right? It could, could become a real serious issue, right, later on in her life. Well, the, the Church of Thessalonica has gotten confused about a very important doctrine, and that is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is referring to when Christ returns, his second coming, to bring about judgment, and they feel that though they have missed the day of the Lord because false teaching has been given to them. Now, that's a pretty big thing to be confused about. So that's the reason that Paul writes to them, to clarify this this issue to them. And we're going to look at the first two chapters tonight. And chapter one is encouragement. They've been persecuted and Paul's encouraging them. And then chapter two is clearing up this confusion about the day of the Lord. Verse one of chapter one says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. If you're new to this study, maybe you don't know about the Apostle Paul. He was first Saul, was the persecutor of the church, didn't believe that Jesus was God. It was blasphemy to believe that he was the Messiah. God gets a hold of his life in one instant, calls him by name, and he becomes Paul. Surrendered to the Lord, in time, becomes the Apostle Paul, the church planter. 
God used him in the book of Acts to plant this church, Thessalonica, in modern-day Greece. And now he's wanting to make sure that they stay established in the Lord. As he's traveling, he travels with two other men. And they're younger men that he's mentoring, that he's discipling, Silas and Timothy. And there's real value in serving the Lord and doing life as a team. We see this over and over in Paul's life, as he didn't allow himself to be a maverick. He didn't allow himself to serve the Lord in in isolation. That's true in our lives as well. A lot of times we just want it to be us and the Lord. And God goes, yes, I, I want you to be close with me, but I also want you to be close with brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's writing to the church in Thessalonians, and it's in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul loves to begin his greetings with grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. It's been defined this way, God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. He's writing to people who are in the Lord. They're already saved. It's a gathering of believers and he's saying, grace to you in our Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ, because we currently need God's grace. We never get to a place where we stop needing the grace of God. For God to relate to us through his Son, instead of by what we deserve. And that would be God's message to you tonight, to me tonight. Grace to you. Grace for forgiveness, for where we have sinned this week. Grace for our weaknesses. Strength for our imperfections. God wants to pour out his his grace upon us. Also, grace was the Greek greeting. There would be Greek believers, but also Jewish believers. They would say charis, or grace to one another. And what's second is peace from God. When we're walking in and we're living in the grace of God, we can experience peace from God. We have peace with God because we're his children, but this is peace from God. They go, you know what? I know that I'm God's child. And because of that, I'm living in a place of peace. As you look at Paul's introductions, you'll never find peace before grace. Is it significant? Yes. Because it's living in a place where we're relating to the Lord through grace that results in the peace. If we have a relationship with God that's based on works, then guess what? We're never going to be experiencing peace from the Lord. I, I didn't read my Bible like I should today. My thoughts haven't been in the right place. My, my heart has been discontent. And oh, I'm, I'm feeling shame from the Lord. I'm not experiencing peace uh, from the Lord. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of everyone, of all of you, abounds towards each other. He says, We're bound. We have a debt to pay to be thankful for you. What I'm amazed with, with Paul's writings and letters, is he always finds something to be thankful about in these particular churches. Uh, He could have been a little bit frustrated. Really? You guys think you missed the day of the Lord? How is it that you've fallen for this false teaching? You need to get back to the word of God and do your fact checking to get the buzzword of the day, right? You didn't do your fact-checking when it came to this, this teaching, and now you're confused. But, but Paul says, I'm so thankful for you guys. 
I'm bound to be thankful. And he says it's fitting. And the reasons were is because their faith is growing. It's a new church, hasn't been established that many years, and they're continuing to grow in faith and trusting the Lord. It's growing exceedingly. And then their love for everyone abounds towards each other. So they're growing in faith and they're abounding in love. Sounds like a healthy church, doesn't it? How do we grow in faith and grow in love? By having a healthy diet. Healthy diet of the word. Healthy diet of worship. A healthy diet of service. Do you know God's economy of growth is different than ours? As he looks at churches, he doesn't necessarily go, well, this is a healthy church because there's a lot of people coming. Or it's a healthy church because they give a lot of money. Or some of the measures that we have as, as men and women. God looks at, where's their faith? Are they growing in trust and obedience to the Lord? Are they growing in, in love? He's looking for fruit. And he finds that fruit in the church of Thessalonica. Verse 4, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of your persecution and tribulations that you endure. It's fitting to give God glory for what he's doing. The church of Thessalonica has endurance in the midst of persecution and difficulty. And Paul didn't have a problem glorifying God. Saying, have you heard about the church of Thessalonica? They just keep growing. They keep abounding in love. And they're being persecuted like nobody's business. But they're remaining faithful. And they're enduring in the midst of of hardship. Let's be careful to give God the glory. But let's also not be afraid to encourage or boast about what God's doing. To be able to come up to someone's life and say, you know what? I just really see you growing in Christ. I see your trust in Christ growing. I see your love for others growing. I know you've been going through a really hard time, but you've remained steadfast. We're kind of slow to give out encouragement, aren't we? And to acknowledge what God's doing in someone's life. We very rarely see the growth in our own lives. Amen? I think that's appropriate. We don't want to be going around going, wow, I I think I've really grown in love this year. And my faith, have you noticed my faith, right? That that would lend towards pride. And so we're walking close to the Lord. We're walking in humility. We're not going to necessarily see our own growth. And it's so encouraging when someone comes up alongside of us and says, you know, man, you've just been growing. You've been trusting the Lord. You've been faithful. You've got a difficult circumstance and you're pressing in to the Lord. Speaking of the persecution that they're going through in verse 5, it says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you've been counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. The persecution was a badge of honor for the church of Thessalonica. In fact, it's, it's proof, it's evidence. It says manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the kingdom of God. Now, sometimes what we would consider to be persecution is our own foolishness, isn't it? It's our own poor choices. It's our own stupidity. And then we go, oh, I'm being persecuted for Christ. So, so we need to be careful that we don't put everything in the basket of persecution. But if we're truly being persecuted because of our love for Christ and our walk with Christ and our faithfulness with Christ, the Bible says that's evidence that you're going in the right direction. So tonight, if you're in that place and you go, man, it seems like my life has been really hard since I've become a Christian. 
since I decided to follow Christ. I'm, I'm having opposition in my family, in, in my workplace, in, in my neighborhood. That's proof that God has touched your life. You're swimming upstream. You're not just going along with the way of the world any longer. And that was the case for the church of Thessalonica. In the next few verses, it's talking about how God's going to deal with those that persecute the church. In verse 6, it says, Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. So if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, we can leave it in God's hands and know that God will deal with the one who's persecuting us. If someone's messing with your children, doesn't that get your attention as a mom or a dad? And I think moms can actually be a little bit more intimidating than even dads, right? You cross dad, look out, but you cross mom and your life is over. <laughs> Mama bear has, has come out. And what the Holy Spirit's communicating is God sees what's being done to the church of Thessalonica. He sees how they have been persecuted, how they've been troubled, and God's going to trouble them. God's going to bring judgment upon them. In verse 7, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Church of Thessalonica, you will have rest from this persecution, from these trials. When? When Christ appears, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when God's going to set this right. And that's what we look forward to as our ultimate rest. In verse 8, in flaming fire, speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ, taking vengeance on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that at different points in history, there's different attributes of God that come under greater scrutiny. And one of them today is the judgment of God. That if God is loving, how can he send someone to hell? If God is kind and compassionate, how can he bring his judgment? And I want you to look closely at verse 8. It says, taking vengeance. So, so God is bringing the justice on those who don't know the Lord and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your understanding of God, do you believe God to be just? Is he just? So then if he's just, he's going to be justified in his judgment. And what's clearly stated in, in verse 8 is not obeying the gospel. So what's the gospel? That Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. He paid the price for our sin that all who believe are saved. So in order to receive God's judgment, you have to repeatedly, over the course of your whole entire life, walk over and upon the broken body of Jesus Christ to reject what he's done on Calvary. So God is just in pouring out his judgment. Also, we have to remember we're sinners, so we deserve this judgment. What we don't deserve is the grace of God. If you sent your child to die in order to bring about a remedy, and someone mocked your child, didn't believe in your child, had no respect for your child, you're saying in order for you to be saved, you have to receive this free gift, 
is it wrong to then hold them responsible? And so why does someone receive the judgment of God? Because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And it's a willful decision. I think God is going to bring up those accounts before us and say, look, here's an opportunity you had to receive Jesus. And you mocked him. Here was another opportunity you had to receive the grace of God and you thought you could do it on your own. Time and time again after the course of your your whole life, at any moment, if someone believes, they're saved. God's willing and ready to, to forgive. Goes on to describe God's judgment. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So it's clear that those who are persecuting the church, those that don't obey the gospel, there's everlasting destruction, that hell is eternal, and also it's the absence from the presence of the Lord. That's the worst part about hell, is that God's presence isn't there. Not that God doesn't have the power to be there if he chose to, but that's part of his judgment is he's pulling back his presence. They're they're removed from the glory of, of his power. The other day I was asked a question, what moves us more as believers, heaven or hell? Like what motivates us more? Should heaven motivate us more or should hell motivate us more? And I think it's both equally. Because without hell, then heaven wouldn't be as grand. So, so in a sense, the black backdrop of hell creates the, the goodness of heaven But we don't just want the judgment of God to motivate us. We want the kindness of God to motivate us. And so we we hold both with that tension of saying, man, heaven is real and and hell is real. And I've always found it to be really convicting. If I really believe the biblical teaching on hell, it should move me. It, It should move me to that place where, as God wills, I don't want anyone to perish. I want to love people and declare the gospel to them. God would give them the opportunity to receive Christ as their Savior. In verse 10, when he comes in that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. So when he returns, he returns with his saints. We're we're glorified with him to rule and reign with Christ. All who believe were admiring the Lord. There's going to be no pride at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're not going to be looking at ourselves. We're going to be looking at Christ. We're going to be worshiping Christ. We're going to be admiring Christ. Because our testimony among you was believed. So, so Paul's saying you trusted the gospel. Paul's prayer for the church of Thessalonica. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. What's Paul praying? He's saying, I'm praying that every good thing that God has in store would be accomplished in your life. You would fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness. Why? That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. To me, this is the miracle of all miracles. That God could save us, and then that he could be magnified through our lives. The word magnified means for something to be made larger. Maybe you're getting to that 
point in your journey of life where the words on the page of your Bible need to be magnified. And so now you have progressive lenses. And this little lens is is helping those words to, to be magnified. So you have God who is so huge and giant, but yet by his grace, our lives could be a lens in which Jesus is magnified. And that's God's purpose. That's, that's why he saved us. It's so that we could fulfill God's good pleasure for us, that we could love, that we could serve, that we could step into all that God has for us. And as people encounter our lives, they encounter Jesus in a greater way. And why is that a miracle? Because we're sinners. How could I ever magnify Christ? It's only through Christ working in my life and his power. You guys ready to do a little bit of thinking in chapter 2? So as we get into chapter 2, we're going to look at the rapture, the second coming of Christ, and the Antichrist, and how the church of Thessalonica was confused and thinking that they had missed the, the day of the Lord. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be so soon shaken in mind or trouble either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ has come. So the first thing that Paul says in verse 1 is he says, we're going to talk about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. There's different views on eschatology, which means end-time events. There's people that look at the rapture of the church and put it at, at different timetables. We talked a little bit about that in First Thessalonians. The rapture of the church simply means when God takes the church and causes us to be caught up into heaven. It says that he comes in the clouds, that we go up to meet with him in the clouds and forever be with the Lord, that we're gathered together with him. As I look at verse 1, Paul seems to be talking about two separate events that the day of the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to his second coming that was referred to in chapter 1 as the day of the Lord. It's when he comes to set things right. He comes with vengeance. He comes to, to rule and reign. And the saints come with him in that moment to rule and reign in Christ. To be gathered together to him is the rapture of the church. As we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Christ came in the clouds and we were gathered to him to forever be with the Lord. So the rapture is us going up and then his second coming is Christ landing on the Mount of Olives to rule and reign. What the church of Thessalonica misunderstood is that they had missed the day of the Lord, that somehow Christ had returned and they had missed it altogether. And Paul says in verse 2, I don't want you to be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or word, as if something has come from us. So there was imposters, there were false teachers that were declaring things in the name of Paul. It might have went something like this. I heard Paul teaching recently, and, and he had said that the day of the Lord had already happened. And they're like, really? Wow, Paul. He planted this church. We, we know Paul. We trust Paul. And then it, there may have been even a counterfeit letter that was going around in Paul's name. So Paul's saying, you know what, we don't want you to be shaken, even if somebody uses our name as the day of Christ has already come. You could see why this would be a little bit troubling, right? 
you're reading all about Christ's return and how he's going to set things right. You're like, man, we already missed it. We thought we were kind of a loser bunch of believers, but now we really know that we're a loser bunch of believers. Like, this is crazy. We, we, we missed the day, day of the Lord. So Paul says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of per- perdition. So again, he's talking about that day. He's talking about the second coming of, of Jesus Christ, not, not the rapture of the church. And he's saying, guys, Christ hasn't returned because there has to be a falling away that takes place first, and then the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The word falling away in the Greek is apostasia. It means departure. So before Christ's return and his second coming, there's going to be a walking away of the faith. There's going to be a departure from the things of God. And that's described for us in 1 Timothy chapter 4 as as perilous times. So this departure takes place so that the man of sin, the man of perdition, perdition means destruction, can be revealed. So he's saying, Church of Thessalonica, you haven't missed the second coming of Jesus Christ because this falling away hasn't taken place. And also, this man of sin hasn't been revealed. If you read the book of Revelations, you know that this man of sin or or man of destruction is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to be revealed during this seven-year period that's called the Tribulation. And then at the end of the seven-year period is the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to read verse 4 that describes the Antichrist and then go to some verses in Daniel and 1 John that speak of the Antichrist as well. So this son of perdition, this son of destruction, this man of sin in verse 4, this is what he does. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he's saying, look, I am greater than God or anything that is called God, or anything that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So complete replacement of God, to the point where he's sitting in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, declaring himself to be God. So keep that in mind, and we'll go back to the book of Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 8 verse 23. Daniel chapter 8, verse 23. So the book of Daniel is the Old Testament. It's after the book of Ezekiel. And you're like, that helps a ton. If you find the book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, go a little bit to your left. Bible app on your phone, you have beat us all to Daniel. Daniel 8, verse 23. This is a prophecy about the Antichrist. I do think it's good to flip to these passages sometimes, if it's in your physical Bible or your app, because it gets us familiar with the scriptures and where things are located. Daniel 8, verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, 
who understands sinister schemes. So it's speaking of latter time. It's speaking when transgressions have reached their fullness. So this progression of greater and greater wickedness. There's going to be a king that comes up, a leader, and he's got fierce features. He's a fierce leader, and he understands sinister schemes. And then in chapter 8, it goes on to prophesy about the Antichrist. Turn a page over to Daniel 9, verse 26. In Daniel 9, there's this prophecy of 70 weeks in regards to the nation of Israel. And in the last week, which is the tribulation period, is the rise of the son of perdition, the the Antichrist. So this is verse 26 and 27 of Daniel 9. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So he's going to come in, bring destruction. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, the last week, Daniel's 70th week. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even unto consumption, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And Jesus refers to this in Matthew as well. It's what we saw in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It's known as the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist comes in to the temple, declares himself to be God, and that's the abomination of desolation. So what has to happen between now and this event? There has to be a temple. If you know in Israel today, there's no temple. There hasn't been a temple since AD 70. But there's a group that has put all of the things in place necessary to to try to rebuild the temple. But ultimately, there's a God factor. Because if you noticed on the Temple Mount, what's there? The Dome of the Rock. So it's a little bit of a problem because the Muslim community is not too open to the temple being built. Something's going to happen. Something's going to take place. The temple will be rebuilt and the Antichrist is going to come in and declare himself to be God in in the very temple. Turn over to Daniel chapter 11 and look at verse 36. It, It describes the Antichrist as well. Daniel 11 verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods. And shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. So we get a clear idea of the attitude of the Antichrist. You guys still with me? So let's turn to one more. First John chapter 4. Back to the New Testament. The end of the New Testament. 1 John 4, let's start in verse 1, and we'll read down a few verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. The church of Thessalonica needed to test every teaching and every spirit to see if it was biblical, to go back to, to the scriptures. They'd gotten confused because they'd given way to, to false teaching. And we have to be careful. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things in the name of Christ. This is a time to know your Bible. Satan hasn't changed his tactic. He wants to deceive. We have to know the scriptures. We've always got to take it back to the scriptures. And we test every spirit. Someone tells us that they've had a spiritual encounter. Is the fruit of that encounter that Jesus is God, that Jesus has come in the flesh. And if the answer is no, then you need to throw it out. That's the test of the spirits, is if Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now it describes the Antichrist. And every spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this spirit is of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. And so the spirit of the Antichrist is already present. The Antichrist may not be on the world scene at this point. Could be. But won't be revealed until this revelation period. Won't be revealed until he goes into the temple. But the spirit of the Antichrist has already come into the world. That's what John is saying and declaring to us. We oftentimes think that the Antichrist that we're reading about is just against Christ. If that's not enough. And he is totally against Christ. But everything that we've read tonight about the Antichrist is in replace of Christ. He is replacing Christ with himself and his own glory. And that spirit is alive and well today, and we have to be able to spot it. Does that make sense? So as we look at our culture, hasn't Christ been replaced? And what has Christ been replaced with? The worship of self, which is what Satan is all about. How is it that the world is so ready to drink the Kool-Aid of the Antichrist and Satan? Because we worship ourselves. So someone that comes in and feeds that and fuels that, people will eat it up like candy. So that gives us a fuller picture of the Antichrist. And then look at 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. A little bit left in your Bible. So Paul's saying, look, you haven't missed the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ, because this falling away hasn't happened. The son of perdition hasn't gone into the temple and revealed himself to be God. And verse 5 is interesting. He says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul was only with the church of Thessalonica for a few short weeks, and he's already rapping about end times. He's like explaining all this to them about the rapture, the second coming, and the Antichrist. And Paul's saying, guys, we went over this. And isn't that amazing? Paul saw this as an important thing for a new believer to know. In verse 6, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. So the Antichrist has something that's restraining, that's preventing him from being revealed. And it's listed in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We see this spirit of Antichrist. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. It's referring to the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the one that is restraining, 
keeping back the, the Antichrist, but when he is taken out of the way, then the Antichrist is free to, to come in and, and be revealed. So God in his infinite wisdom at some point will say, okay, Holy Spirit, not that you're removed, but go ahead and just step aside. Just step aside and now allow lawlessness to do what lawlessness does. A lot of times judgment from God is all he's got to do is step aside and just let things take its natural course. So the, the Holy Spirit just simply stops restraining. You know, I believe the rapture has taken place. The church has been caught up to be with the Lord. And, and the Holy Spirit lives inside of the church of God. And that church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is that restraining effect. We're called to be salt and light. What would it look like if there was not believers? If there wasn't the, the church of God? And so that's God's desire for the church, that we would be bringing salt and we would be bringing light. Once the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit steps aside, verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Antichrist will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It's not like God's intimidated. He's like, oh, here comes the lawless one. He's allowing people to see, okay, you don't want me? You want to replace me? So here comes the the lawless one. Here, you, you, can, you can have him. And then God in his perfect timing will judge the Antichrist with, with no difficulty. Isn't it interesting that the Antichrist is described as lawless? He's the lawless one. You know, and more and more our culture says, I want anarchy. You know, freedom is to do whatever I want. And that, that's never God's definition of freedom. It wasn't our founding father's under, understanding of freedom. And God puts our life into a biblical order. And we understand that being a believer is that we come under the authority of God. We want our lives to line up with, with the word of God. But the Antichrist is that, that lawless one. Verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So Jesus is sent by the Father, empowered by the Father, and the Antichrist is sent by Satan and is empowered by Satan. So the Antichrist is the complete counterfeit to Jesus. So is this perverse, twisted version of Jesus to try to lead people astray. And notice the Antichrist comes with powers, signs, and lying wonders. Miracles that, that lead people astray. So just because it's supernatural doesn't mean it's from God. Satan comes as the angel of light. So we have to test that as well. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive, because they don't receive the love of the truth, that they may be saved. So there's, there's a rejection of the truth. There's a rejection of Jesus. And so now they've been turned over to deception. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all may be condemned who didn't believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is sobering, church. It's speaking of this period when the Antichrist is being revealed and the spiritual condition of the world, the Holy Spirit steps aside, people are believing a lie, and so God says, go for it, you can believe a lie. Every time you say no to Jesus Christ, it's a big deal. Every time you say no to the gospel, every time you reject Christ, you mock Christ, it's a big deal because at some point, 
and only God knows when that point is, he confirms your decision. And he says, okay, you don't want to believe? You want to believe this about me? You want to mock my son? You want to do it on your own? Okay, you've, you've made your decision. I look at my life, and before God got a hold of my life, I mocked the things of Christ. I grew up in a Christian home. I made fun of it. I didn't believe it. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm so thankful God continued to pursue me in his grace because even as a 14-year-old, I'd given the Lord more than enough material for him to say, okay, Eric, go for it. And I could feel, even at a young age, my heart hardening because the, the truth was being declared to me. And I was saying, I don't want it. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I, I don't believe it. I had my own motives for being at church. I had what I wanted to get and who I wanted to date as a, as a young man, you know, at, at church. And God could have easily said, that's it. But instead, he was gracious to continue to reveal himself to me. But if you're in that place of rejecting Christ, man, may tonight be the night that you get saved. May the tonight you realize, man, God loves me. Why would I say no to him? Why would I say no to him? Continue to knock upon the door of my heart. Paul now focuses his attention back on the church of Thessalonica. He says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. So he says, guys, you don't have to worry. You haven't missed the second coming of Jesus Christ. The falling away hasn't taken place. The apostasy hasn't taken place. The Antichrist hasn't revealed himself in the temple. And we want to give thanks to the Lord for you. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. He's saying, guys, remember, you're loved by God. You're beloved of the Lord. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Guys, you aren't left behind. You didn't miss the second coming of Christ. You're chosen by God. And we can either stumble over God's choosing or we can be humbled by God's choosing. Some go, well, God, what gives you the right to choose? And more in reality, we got to go, God, I, I don't know why you would choose me. I don't know why you would choose anyone. I know me, you know me, and yet you've chosen me to be saved. You may be wondering, well, am I chosen? Believe in your chosen. Trust the gospel, choose the Lord, and we know that God's working in you to draw you un, unto him. He brings him back to this place of saying, you're chosen by the Lord for salvation through sanctification. And sanctification is that process of being made holy and being made by the Lord. It's the work that God is, is doing in our lives by the Spirit and the belief in the truth. To which he called you to our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is something that we own, something that we identify with. It's our gospel. Jesus died for me and he rose again. And also, it's something that God's commissioned me to share with others. Therefore, brethren, so here's the application of this. Stand fast, hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. We think of tradition as a bad word. Like if something is a tradition, that it must have lost its meaning. But can't traditions have meaning? Can't you have a tradition of having date night with your spouse and have it be meaningful? Absolutely. Can't you have the tradition of reading your Bible and have it be meaningful? You, can't you have the tradition of communion and have it be meaningful? So Paul's saying, don't get off track with false teaching, but hold fast to what we've taught you in the word. 
And this is our tradition, if you would, is we're holding fast to, to the word of God. I think it applies to us today as, as well. We leave with this great promise. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation or everlasting hope or encouragement and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every word and work. He's saying, guys, instead of being confused, instead of having this misunderstanding, instead of wondering about ballots and pallets, you haven't missed the second coming of the Lord. Stand fast in the word. Hold on to your hope. Allow your heart to be comforted and establish you in every word or work. So here's an application as we wrap up tonight. I know we've covered a lot of material, but I think there's an application for us tonight. Is there some confusion in your life? Is there some confusion in my life? God is not the author of confusion. If this church, that's an awesome church, that's well-founded and on the right track, could be confused about something as giant as the second coming of Jesus Christ, could there be something in my life that I have misunderstood about the Lord? Maybe someone told me along the way, hey, this is the way that it works. This is who who God is, but they weren't telling me the truth. Maybe willingly or, or unwillingly, but the result of that false teaching is now I've got confusion in my life. I really didn't know the truth in, in this area of my life. Or it could be as simple as, no, it's not a result of false teaching. It's just a result of, I don't know. I don't know what the word says in this particular area. Or it could be, I do know and I haven't accepted it. <laughs> so now there's confusion in my life. I know exactly what God says about this area of my life, but I'm wrestling with the Lord with it. But I do know this. Our loving, heavenly, awesome father tonight would say, Eric, come spend some time with me. I'm going to clear up the confusion in your life. You don't have to be confused about this. I want your heart to be comforted, and I want your heart to be established. So let's wait upon the Lord for a minute. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ. And I know it's Wednesday night, and I know that going, man, I think everybody in here knows the Lord. Well, I sure hope so. But let's never assume that everybody knows the Lord. And as we were reading the word tonight, if you go, man, I've never given my heart to Christ. And I know time and time again, I've said no to Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand to the Lord right now and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, be the Lord, Lord of my life. So let's wait upon God and see what he'd want to do in this moment. Jesus, I think back in my life and how many times I heard the gospel, I heard your love for me and had a hard heart towards it. But yet I was at church. Lord, you know every heart that's here. I pray that you would communicate your love. And for those that have never said yes to you, never surrendered to you, that tonight they'd be saved, that tonight they would trust in you. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, would you raise your hand and just hold it up high? Say, I need to receive Christ. I need to trust him for salvation to believe that he died for my sins and rose again. Praise the Lord. I see your hand there in the back. Anybody else that says, that's me. I need to receive the Lord. I've never made that decision.
Praise God, I see your hand in the back as well. Maybe you've been around church a lot. Praise the Lord, I see both of you back there as well. Just pray this prayer with me, crying out to the Lord, Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you sent your son to die for my sin and rise again. I turn from my sin and receive your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me. Father, as a church, we thank you for those that have responded to you. We pray that you would bless them, that you would grow them in you, that you'd fill them with your love, that you'd protect them. You would reveal to them the glory of your love, the glory of the gospel. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. God's good.